Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based, live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You know our trusted partner, TireRack.com, for their fast, free shipping, free road hazard protection, convenient installation options, and their great selection of best tires, like the highly consumer-rated Vredestein Pinza AT. But did you know they sell other automotive products? Wheels, brakes, suspension, just to name a few. Go to TireRack.com slash Colin. TireRack.com, the way tire buying should be. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash. What's going on, everybody? John Middlecoff on Free and Out Podcast, brought to you by the Colin Coward Podcast Network. It's draft week. If you're listening to this, maybe Wednesday afternoon, maybe Thursday during the day, the draft is finally here. Uh, I can't wait. I, I've been waiting a long, long time. I, I'm going to, because this podcast comes out on Wednesday, I'm going to try to keep it time sensitive. And I have a mock draft. But I'm, I'm more going to describe the thinking and the way that I would do it if I was those teams. Uh, I have some thoughts on John Dorsey we're going to get into right now. And you guys are providing great questions, and I'm going to answer a bunch of them. Uh, again, like I always say, if you on iTunes, subscribe, rate, and in the review section, leave your questions, and I will get to them. I've been getting to them the last couple podcasts. Uh, I have a bunch of good ones this week, and I'm, I'm fired up. Draft week, God, we've waited a long, long time. One of my favorite weeks of the sports calendar. But but i got to start with this. Recent reports the last several weeks uh, have been that John Dorsey, the Cleveland Browns, which I think given the state of their franchise, I've said this and I don't believe it's hyperbole, given that they have the first pick, the fourth pick, they also have the 33rd pick, which is the first pick in the second round, which as anyone knows is an incredibly valuable pick. Because basically, after Thursday night ends, the draft resets and it's basically just a brand new draft the starting day. So they're at the top of that draft. 
But they also have the 35th pick. Because remember last year when they traded, made the trade with Houston, so Houston can get up and get Deshaun Watson. They got this year's second. And it turns out that Houston ended up sucking because Deshaun Watson got hurt. So 1-4-33-35. and 35. Four picks inside the top 35. That's crazy. I mean, that's basically unheard of. John Dorsey, who was brought in because the analytical movement of Sashi Brown was, you know, basically headed or taking the Cleveland Browns straight to a, I mean, they were a complete, they were a laughingstock joke. Sashi Brown, unlike Sam Hinkie uh, with the Philadelphia Sixers, trust the process. You know, I, I'm not the biggest Sam Hinkie guy, but I do think he is 500 times more capable than Sashi Brown ever would have uh, been able to be as the leader of the Cleveland Browns. So they bring in John Dorsey, basically the opposite, a quote-unquote football guy with a long resume, working for the Packers in the front office, and obviously the general manager of the last five years of the Kansas City Chiefs. He brings in a bunch of his buddies that have long resumes. Elliot Wolf from the Green Bay Packers, who had been Ron Wolf's son, you know, highly respected guy in the league. Scott McLuhan, former Washington Redskins general manager, who's on record as, as loving Baker Mayfield. And the thing that really stands out to me about this situation, and I, I don't really like it, to be honest with you, is that I, I get it and I understand it, that John Dorsey has not told a soul what his plans are, maybe beside his tight confidants. And when he hasn't told a soul, the main guy that stands out to me is Hugh Jackson. And typically in this situation, you want your head coach and general manager. John Lynch, the other day for the media, every general manager in the league has to give a give a press conference. And in New England's unique, Belichick does it. And they get in front of the media, and they, they talk about what they're doing. And the one thing John Lynch kept saying over and over is how much time him and Kyle Shanahan spent. They're on the same page. They're working in cohesion to try to get the ultimate goal. Well, the Browns aren't. And in, in fairness to Dorsey, Hugh Jackson is just a dead man walking. He will be the Cleveland Browns coach the next eight years. My question is, why, why didn't you just fire him four months ago? Why even put the quarterback, whoever you select, and we'll get into who I think they'll end up taking here in a minute, basically is just going to be playing for a coach and even an offensive coordinator in Todd Haley that'll no longer be there in eight months. That's what I call a little bit dysfunctional. Like, that is not... I, I just don't understand Hugh Jackson, who, you know... I, and I don't blame John Dorsey for necessarily not telling him, because the moment you give him uh, any information, he sings like a canary and the entire country knows. Through I mean, no one docks through the media openly and, you know, under the radar more than Hugh Jackson. He can't keep his mouth shut. So I, I get it with John Dorsey. But I also think that John Dorsey doesn't think he's a very good football coach. You know why? Because Hugh Jackson's not a good football coach. He won one game in two years. You know, I, I don't have the record books in front of me, but that has to be one of the worst 32-game stretches in the history of the National Football League. I mean, it just doesn't get any worse. How he kept his job with a new general manager is beyond me. But not just from a football standpoint, because then you get into a personnel standpoint. And now you're in a situation where even this offseason, you've made big moves for Jarvis Landry. Hugh Jackson had no input in that. But here's the problem. Unlike in basketball with Sam Hinkie, Sam Hinkie can give his team or his coach a lineup or even just a 10-man roster, 10 guys that he would play, and it kind of dictates the game. In baseball, general managers, I see it in my own backyard here with Billy Bean, the manager for the Oakland A's, Bob Melvin does not set the lineup. 
The front office does. They control game days. In football, it's the opposite. General managers, beside maybe fighting over the last wide receiver or something on a game day roster, has nothing, and I repeat, nothing to do with the function of game day. They don't call the plays. They are not a part of the game plan. Maybe they can force you to start a player or not, but still, the head coach is in full control once the whistle blows and the ball's kicked off. So John Dorsey, he can do all this stuff, and clearly he's in control from free agency with all his moves. And now, you know, with as much draft capital as I ever remember in the top 35 picks, I mean, four picks, that's crazy, especially when two of the picks are in the top five. That's just wild. But he's going to give his head coach players, which I don't, I understand why he's going to be signing or drafting the players that he wants. The problem is, is once they get there, it's so out of his control, you know, coaching these guys up, how they're communicated with. Like, John Dorsey's not going to be dealing with Sam Darnold or Josh Allen or Bradley Chubb or Saquon Barkley on a daily basis. He's going to see him, you know, at practice and stuff, but he's not coaching them up in the meetings. You know, he's not telling them what plays they're going to run. He's a coach that he clearly doesn't respect, that he wouldn't even begin to tell even the first thought of who he's going to draft to, is going to have control of his players for these eight months. I think this entire process, especially the way it's being handled right now in Cleveland shows, that what a wasted, and I repeat wasted, eight-month span they're going to have from the moment this draft ends till the moment the season ends and Hugh Jackson is given the pink slip and told to leave. Because they could have. John Dorsey did not get this job in like the middle of March. He had this job before the season ended. When the season ended, he could have fired Hugh Jackson. It would have been one of the more intriguing jobs in recent memory. They had two elite top picks in the top five. They have a general manager that knows what he's doing, that's been around high-level coaches. He could have hired his entire coach or, you know, his entire staff and and the coach that he wanted. I I think he would have had guys lined up for the job. Now, you could counter-argue me and say that, you know, it's still the Cleveland Browns. There's a huge negative connotation. I I get it. But you have so much on the line in this draft, which I think in the modern era, let's let's just say the internet era. And as a millennial, that's what I kind of live in, the internet era. Era. So like 2002, right now, the last 18, 19 years, uh, and at the end of the season, it'd be 18 football seasons, that there has never been a bigger draft than the one the Cleveland Browns, going into a draft, that the Cleveland Browns are about to uh, embark on. And I, I think they're doing them a self a disservice and have done themselves a disservice by even having Hugh Jackson around. And you're seeing the way it's played out. They clearly don't trust him. But the problem is, uh, once the players show up and are officially on the team, the general manager just doesn't have that much juice. John Dorsey's work, you know, is somewhat kind of over, uh, beside like the waiver wire and obviously training camp. But in terms of the development of the players, on how much better they're going to get, on maybe setting them back, you know, that's out of John Dorsey's control. And I, I think he set up, set himself up for a pretty rocky eight-month stretch. Okay, this is a mock draft season. If you're listening to this on Thursday, the actual draft is here. I just did a mock draft earlier this week for The Athletic. I'm going to do it a little differently here. Not necessarily go the pick that... A combination of kind of what I'm hearing. I'm going to give multiple options at each spot for the top 10. Uh, And that's mainly the quarterbacks, the top four or five players. 
because you may be listening to this on Friday. The draft might have happened. Kind of my thoughts on, you know, the top guys, what I would do, and what I think is going to happen. Let's start at one, the Cleveland Browns. We've been talking about the Cleveland Browns on this show nonstop for the last two months. They have pick one and pick four. I, I don't ever remember two teams, at least in a long, long time. I think it was actually the Cleveland Browns in like 2000 having two picks in the top four. So it's a very unique situation. Uh, the most basic level of football is you cannot function without a quarterback. No team has gone quarterback lists as long as the Cleveland Browns. They really have no choice at number one. My gut and educated opinion from talking to people around the league, no inside, I don't know anyone inside the Cleveland Browns, but just my feel for it. I think they end up taking Josh Allen. That's my opinion. Now, I talked to other people that think that Sam Darnold's a no-brainer. There have been reports this week of Baker Mayfield. I, What I would do if I was in charge, I've said it all along, I would take Sam Darnold. They need to take the guy with the highest floor, the, the smallest risk of busting. And to me, in this quarterback class, that's Sam Darnold. But I think that John Dorsey who is not necessarily worried about this year, as I talked about earlier, doesn't give a shit what Hugh Jackson says. Hugh Jackson is a dead man walking. He will get the pink slip as soon as the 16th and final game, assuming they don't make the playoffs, is over, regardless of the record. He's gonzo. Bye-bye. They take a guy with a huge upside and then try to go out and hire a top coach this offseason. Josh Allen will be their quarterback, is what what my gut says. I would take Sam Darnold. That would mean Sam Darnold's on the on the board for the second pick with the New York Giants. This, if you're the New York Giants, everyone I've talked to that's close with the New York Giants, they don't want to take a quarterback. I think that's the most asinine, just insane thinking that we've heard in sports in recent memory. Eli Manning's 37. He hasn't been good for a couple years old, a couple couple seasons now running. I would understand if he was 32 and had a rough stretch. Remember, Phillip Rivers went through that like five or six years ago, was just playing really poorly, and then bounced out back. I, I, I get that. But he's 37 years old. You have to draft his heir apparent. And there's going to be, obviously the Browns are taking a quarterback at one. That would leave three potential top 10 level quarterbacks on the board. I think, if, especially if they take Josh Allen at number one, that would be the Cleveland Browns. I think they go Sam Darnold at number two. Uh, but... Everything you read and people I've talked to, Saquon Barkley is big time in play. So I would not be shocked if Saquon Barkley's taken. To me, that's pretty insane. I would personally not take a running back that high. I don't really care how good that guy is. It's just too easy, especially in this draft, given how many running backs are uh, that there are, you know, on the board that probably have at minimum second round grades. I'd say most teams probably have five to six running backs that have top 60 grades. Uh, 60 players, like top 60 players in the draft. I think you'd have to entertain taking a second ru- a running back, especially like the Giants have a second round pick, a high second round pick. That's what I would do. But I think they, if Sam Darnold's there, that's what happens. The third pick, this has basically been in every mock draft you've seen. He's my favorite quarterback in the draft. Uh, I think Josh Rosen ends up with the New York Jets. Great fit, big school guy intellectual guy, millennial. It's been a little controversial, but I think he'd be a great fit. And I think when it's all said and done, uh, when we look back in seven, eight years, 
if he can stay healthy, which is a legitimate concern, he has not been durable in college. He has not finished out his last two seasons. Like that, to me, of all the red flags we've talked about with these quarterbacks, beside maybe the accuracy one with Josh Allen, which is very, very important as a red flag, uh, durability is also a big deal. But if he can stay healthy, he'll be the best one. And the New York Jets are not an easy franchise to play for. Uh, they just, they're under the magnifying glass, 365, because of the market they play in. Uh, they're in a division with Belichick and Brady. It, it's just, it's a tough place to play. It'll eat you up and spit you out. Remember a couple, I guess it was a little more than that now, like eight, nine years ago when Rex Ryan and Mark Sanchez were on top of the world. And then two years later, it was like, get rid of these bumps. It, it flips fast in these massive markets. It's, it's hard to survive. I think he's wired the right way. Uh, I didn't love the trade when they made it because they didn't know who was going to be there. But if you would have told me back the the morning, I think it was a Saturday morning, I read that the Jets have traded up from six to three and given, I think, uh, three second-round picks and obviously their one and flip-flopping with with the uh, Indianapolis Colts and they were going to end up with Josh Rosen, I would have said it's well worth it. You know, I think Mike McCagden and Todd Bowles, this guy is that talented to save your job. Because if they end up with a Baker Mayfield, if they end up with a Josh Allen, you know, I, I just think these guys, you're winning three, four games, and you're done. Now, it still might happen with Josh Rosen, but to me, he's talented enough to be a rookie of the year, win six or seven games, and look like you're on a trajectory, you know, to be competitive for years to come. At number four, I think the Browns are going to be in a very, very tough position. If three quarterbacks go in the first three picks, in some order, Allen, Darnold, Rosen. That would leave only Baker Mayfield on the board. And we've read it, and I've talked to a bunch of people. And when I went to the Combine for the 3 and Out podcast, everyone in the league was telling me the same thing. Baker Mayfield's tape as a senior was awesome. And I obviously watched a lot of Baker Mayfield. They're not lying. He, He was excellent. His stock soared through the roof. People love him. And if the Browns are on the clock at number four, and like I've been talking now this entire podcast, John Dorsey's thinking big picture. He's not necessarily thinking about 2018. His quarterback, you know, whoever he drafts at one, probably won't start week one, will probably start halfway through the season. He's going to have a new coach next year. He's not a player away. Hell, he's not multiple players away. There are going to be a ton of teams, the Bills, the Cardinals, uh, the Miami Dolphins, willing to trade up to four. And I think if you're Cleveland, if you can get another second-round pick and use all these second-round picks either to trade back up into the first round you know, and get another solid player you like, to use all those second-round picks on cheap assets and get a bunch of functional starters, and then get that team, whether it's the Dolphins, uh, the Bills would be able to give you potentially multiple first-rounders this year, uh, and, and the Cardinals. I, I think the unique thing about the Cardinals and the Miami Dolphins, if they were to offer you their first-round pick next year, like the Chiefs did and like the Texans did really for the Browns. Uh, the Chiefs did it for the Bills last year. So you're, you're looking at the differences. The Chiefs turned out to be really good, and you kind of knew that when you traded with the Chiefs. But look at the Texans. Last year, now they would never have been drafting in the top five if Deshaun Jack, uh, Watson didn't get hurt, but, but he did. And they ended up, the Cleveland Browns, with that trade, they, they got one of the best, greatest packages you've ever seen. Well, the chances that Miami or Arizona are good next year, to me, are slim to none. So you're going to be looking at a top 10 pick next year. 
And it, most teams are living in the moment, are thinking about this year. To me, the Browns are not. I think it'll be very hard for them to turn down a Miami or Arizona Cardinal offer thinking big picture. So I think one of those two teams trades up to number four and Baker Mayfield goes. That would mean that four quarterbacks went one, two, three, four. That's one of the craziest drafts, if not potentially the craziest draft. If it plays out this way, I'll, I've ever this ever happened. I mean, that's insane. I also think it's one of the greatest wins for anyone drafting five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, because all these premium players are still on the board and going to get pushed down to you. That puts the Denver Broncos at number five. Obviously, with all the quarterbacks being off the board, John Elway has said he would love to trade back. That's not going to be an option if all these quarterbacks are off the board. I think he has to take the best player on the board, also that fits his need. He could easily take Bradley Chubb, but he still has Von Miller, who's a Hall of Fame pass rusher. Shane Ray, they haven't picked up his fifth-year option yet, but I would imagine they do. They still have Derek Wolf. They do a very good job of developing pass rushers. To me, the move would be they just traded to keep Tlaib. They hung their hat on the no-fly zone with Von Miller, obviously Malik Jackson and Derek Wolf. In that super, on that Super Bowl team and on those great defenses. But they had so many good defensive backs. When you have three or four legitimate starting corners, it's impossible to play you. Uh, and I've seen, them, I've seen them live several times over the last four or five years. When they're humming with Bradley Roby, Chris Harris Jr., and when they had Aqib Tlaib, you could not get open on them. So it was easier for actually the pass rush to get to you, beside Von Miller. I think they go Denzel Ward from Ohio State. That would give you Bradley Roby, Denzel Ward, two Ohio State guys, and Chris Harris Jr. All three of those guys can function inside the slot and play outside. Name They'd have the best three corners in the NFL. And I think Elway's seen it firsthand. It put, a, it put his third ring on his finger when he had that incredible defensive backfield. And I think that's ultimately where he leans. The Indianapolis Colts. If it plays out this way and Bradley Chubb's on the uh, the board when the Colts pick, it's one of the truly great trades of all time. Because they would have taken that guy at three. Instead, they got three second-round picks, two this year and one next year, from the New York Jets. Uh, and that would mean the Jets got Rosen, they got Bradley Chubb. It's really one of the great win-win trades I ever remember happening months before the draft, non-first or second pick. It's basically unheard of. Usually that type pick plays out on draft night, but this would be a massive win for Chris Ballard. He'd get a, I mean, let's call it what it is. I think they were second or or last in sacks last year. This team has been desperate for sacks since that Robert Mathis, Dwight Freeney era ended. They, They haven't been able to find a pass rusher to save their life. That's one of the big reasons. We love talking about the offensive line and what a shitty job Grigson did, you know, protecting Luck. His defensive lines were equally as bad, if not worse. Bradley Chubb immediately becomes their best defensive lineman since, you know, young Mathis, young Farini, and is a guy you can build around on defense. To me, it's a no-brainer. The easiest pick that probably Chris Ballard will ever have to make. Then it gets really interesting. Tampa Bay, if this plays out the way it does, with four quarterbacks going in the top two and two defensive players, Ward, Bradley Chubb, then going 5-6, that would leave Saquon Barkley on the board. Not a big believer in taking running back super high, but the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have one of the better young nucleuses in all of the NFL on offense. They have a young quarterback who's their franchise guy, but needs to improve. They have a they have a superstar wide receiver that they just paid in Mike Evans. 
O.J. Howard, the tight end from Alabama, they drafted last year in the first round, I think is going to be a really good player. You add Saquon Barkley to the mix? Name me a team with a young nucleus. I mean, maybe the Chiefs have this with Kelsey, Tyree Kill, Kareem Hunt, but they would be right up there, especially in potential. I, I would say that this group would have a higher ceiling. Now, I like Mahomes a little more than Jameis, but my point remains. If you add Saquon Barkley to Mike Evans, O.J. Howard, and Jameis, this is a team that could contend for a wild card this year. And in a season where Jason Light, the general manager, Dirk Cutter, the head coach, are going to be fighting for their jobs, I think this would be the pick. And I'd love it. This would be one of my favorite. Like, if I if I still played Madden in the video game, this would be the first team I was in a video game once the draft ended. Chicago Bears, I don't really... I think this pick is basically already made if it plays out this way. Quentin Nelson played for the offensive line coach that the Chicago Bears hired this offseason. Harry Highstand, I think that's how you say his name, uh, from Notre Dame, has coached Quentin Nelson his entire career. Quentin Nelson's one of the better guard prospects in recent memory. Now, again, I don't love taking, like running backs, I would say I'm even more extreme with guards. I don't like taking guards in the top 10. I don't care how good they are. Historically, you can find guards later in the draft. Look at the Super Bowl. The highest interior offensive lineman, guard or center, was a third-round pick. There were only multiple first-round interior offensive linemen in the entire playoffs. David DeCastro, you know, is one. He was picked, I think, picked 24. Picked 24. Typically, guys don't go super high, even if they're interior linemen. They go after pick 15. But an individual draft is just based on supply-demand. This guy's the best guard. I would say this, it's it's one of the better guard drafts talking to people in the league in recent memory. To me, that means you can get guards later in the draft, but I, I do think emotion's going to run high for the run high for the Bears. They're going to have coaches banging the table for this guy, new coach. You know, it's a, it's a pretty safe pick, and I think Quentin Nelson goes to the Bears. To me, no-brainer. If it falls this way, this guy could easily go. Like, it wouldn't shock me if the... Denver Broncos drafted Roquan Smith at, at number five. But Roquan Smith, the San Francisco 49ers, everything they're going through with Reuben Foster, uh, to me it's it's a double win. If Reuben Foster never plays another snap for the San Francisco 49ers, Roquan Smith is just your middle linebacker for the foreseeable future, and he could be every bit as impactful as it looked like Reuben Foster could have been. If Reuben Foster's legal troubles are able to go away, uh, she drops the charges, whatever, and he is exonerated and is on the team and, you know, just has a short suspension and is able to shake these demons, which I would say is a pretty big stretch right now. That would give you one of the best, if not the best, young linebacker core in Reuben Foster and Roquan Smith in recent memory. So it, you just can't lose. If Reuben's able to just somehow... I, it's it's hard to word this because it, if he did it, he deserves to go to jail. Like it's bigger in football if he hit his girlfriend. But if she's lying and it actually didn't happen and, and it does go away, then I would still even if these things weren't hanging over his head and Ruben was on the team, I think you could easily still justify taking Smith at the ninth pick. And then obviously with all these question marks with Ruben Foster, I, I think you have to be in the Roquan Smith business. And then at ten. I think this is a tough pick for the Raiders. I've been told from people inside the building that obviously Derwin James, Minka Fitzpatrick are in heavy 
you know, are right up near the desired list of players. But I also think they have a massive, and I repeat, massive need at right tackle, and which ultimately will be their future left tackle because Donald Penn is a is an aging older veteran. And I think they're torn right now that if be somewhat of an overdraft, but talking to a scouting buddy yesterday, it's a it's got a chance to be a historically poor, not necessarily we know things after the fact play out where it's not as bad of a draft, but just based on the prospects on college tape, historically poor tackle draft. They're terrible. There may be two or three guys at best that teams feel could be starters. That's not good. So that means once you get past the first round, and McClinchy, Colton Miller, some of these guys come off the board, you are left with nothing. So if you do need a tackle, you might have to overdraft him a little bit. And I, I say this all the time, the NFL draft is just a marketplace based on supply, demand, what you have to pay for something, or what you could pay for something later and get a better return on investment. That's why I'm always okay with taking guards later on the draft. Look, Andrew Norvell, the offensive guard for the Carolina Panthers that just became the highest paid guard in the history of the league for the Jacksonville Jaguars signed him as a free agent, was an undrafted free agent. I'd say, you know, the second best guard in the league, Coleccio Semele, uh, that plays for the Oakland Raiders, was a second round pick. So you can get good guards, uh, you know, in the later rounds. Even same thing with centers. Jason Kelsey was an all-pro last year for the Super Bowl champion Philadelphia Eagles. I was there in Philly when it happened. He went in the sixth round. But if you want tackles, historically, and just look at the last several years, the good ones go high. And they go really high, like top 15. So if you want to get a good one, you usually have to get aggressive and use a lot of draft capital on them. So I think that Minka Fitzpatrick will be the pick. But I think McGlinchey, the the tackle, that would probably start out at right tackle for the Raiders if he would be the selection, is in heavy and I repeat, heavy consideration come draft day. Let's get to some questions. Uh, we do it every week here on 3 and Out. Go to iTunes in the review section. Subscribe, rate, and leave a question in the review section, and we'll get to it. And there's been a ton, really, the last two weeks of good questions. But I got to start with Casey Simon sent me an email. He says, I don't use uh, iTunes, but I love the 3 and Out podcast. Yes, a pretty good question. Is there a devaluation of edge rushers and tackles due to the increased use of RPOs in the NFL? I was always led to believe that you build your franchise, quarterback, edge rusher, left tackle, same. I, I think most of us are, but and to protect the quarterback. But I think that is somewhat of an outdated strategy. Using the upcoming draft as an example, the increase in importance on some of these interior defensive tackles, like the Brian kid from, I think, Florida, Mohurst, Michigan, who can get up the field quickly, and also interior guards like Quentin Nelson, Isaiah Wynn, Hernandez, to block some of these players. Brings up a pretty good point. And I would I would agree from the sense that I think there has never been more, and maybe it's just the influx of athletes. It's just hard to find typically, you know, defensive tackles. If you're a defensive tackle, at minimum, you weigh 285, right? 280, 290. Uh, that are really good athletes. And usually to be a good pass rusher, you have to be very, very explosive. And they're just, when I was in the league, hell, eight years ago, they were just, it was difficult. Not many teams had good pass rushers, good interior pass rushers. Remember the Giants on their Super Bowl runs 
would do the Amoeba NASCAR packages, and they'd use a lot of defensive ends, uh, whether it was Tuck, uh, OC, that last year, the first championship was Strahan, uh, Kiwanuka was kind of a hybrid, and they'd line them up over the guards or, or centers. Now there are so many, the Aaron Donalds, the Fletcher Cox, there's a lot of just legitimate defensive tackles that can rush the pass rusher. I still believe, and if you look at the best defensive line in the league last year was Jacksonville Jaguars, their edge rush was elite. Obviously, you have to have a really good interior pass rusher, uh, but there's nothing like an edge rusher. Now, I know quarterbacks have gone on record that says interior pass rusher gets to them more. I also think just the nature of the drills they run are always based on stepping up, and you're naturally going to step up to make throws. But I, I still believe, and I've seen it with Khalil Mack, uh, he can line up over guards. There's nothing like having a, a Khalil Mack, you know, a Vaughn Miller, a player like that. To, that's why Bradley Chubb is going to go high in this draft. It's why I'm a little disappointed right now with Solomon Thomas, uh, who went three last year. That's not a great edge rusher. Uh, but but I do think it's definitely changed a little bit just because I think there are more players. Uh, there, there is just a wider supply right now of guys that can do it and do it at a high level. I also think, though, that a lot of these incoming young guys, and we've seen it the last four or five years, like you can line up Clowney over a guard. You can line up Khalil Mack over a guard. Bradley Chubb can line up everywhere. That's what made J.J. Watt so dominant. He could line up everywhere. That, that's the ultimate. And that's the one thing. Like Fletcher Cox, probably a little more than Aaron Donald. You could just line up at defensive end. I, I like a guy. That, to me, it's always, this is always true. In, in probably any walk of life, any business you work in, the more you can do. Like if you're a financial analyst that can also, you know, write the contracts, you know, at your company. So you can value money. And you can write the contracts. You're going to be more valuable than just the guy that can do one of the two things. It's just like, well, if you can rush over a tackle and over a guard, you're going to have more value than a guy that can just do one or the other, right? Like Vaughn Miller. I mean, now he's a Hall of Famer, but he's just an edge rusher. That's that's He's technically in whatever you consider their defense. He's a defensive end, outside linebacker. He's coming over the edge. I'd rather have... You know, if obviously a guy's got to be healthy, Clowney wasn't, but Clowney, what Clowney could become, you can line him up everywhere. And, and there's a value in that. I still believe, and maybe I'll be proven wrong over the next three or four years, you can still find guards uh, later in the draft. Uh, you, you don't necessarily need to take a guy super high, but they're going to be, I would imagine, five guards go in the top 40. So there is clearly, with all the influx of these talented interior pass rushers, uh, I I wouldn't say the teams have changed necessarily their strategy. You you just, I I think Bill Parcells had a famous quote, you know, we can only coach what we're given. And right now they're just given more guards than they are tackles. But to me, tackles are still really important. Setting the edge in football, just outside runs, you know, speed option pass routes, are, are always going to be important parts of the playbook, and I, I don't think that'll ever change. And I, I don't think the 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 value of the tackle position will will diminish anytime soon. Next question, Kobe D. This is a pretty good one. What characteristics do you look for in evaluating a college quarterback? I love this, and I think there are so many characteristics. And really, like when you talk about height, 
when you talk about weight, when you talk about athleticism, when we're talking about the top guys, they clearly have that. So I I, I didn't throw that down here, any measurables, even arm strength. Uh, I would say of this class, Baker Mayfield probably has the worst arm, and I say worst, like least strong arm of obviously Josh Allen, Rosen, Darnold, and him. But they all have enough arm strength to play at the NFL level. So again, like that is all just assumed. Uh, for me, I, I, my ranking was pretty easy. And the irony is only one of these things is really a physical characteristic. It shows you the importance of quarterback. So much stuff is off the field. Number one is accuracy. You have to be accurate to play in the NFL at every level, short, intermediate, long. Uh, if you're not accurate, if you cannot complete passes, you cannot play the position. We see it time and time again. Inaccurate quarterbacks do not last. And there are there's an outlier, like Cam Newton, somewhat of an outlier. Well, you know what? He's one of the greatest running quarterbacks we've ever seen. And in the year he won the MVP, I think it was actually his most accurate season, he also had 10 rushing touchdowns. They ran quarterback power. So if, if he was just a terrible athlete and had to throw, he could not do it. You have to be accurate. You don't need to be Drew Brees accurate, but you have to be accurate to play at a high level. It's why all the good quarterbacks, especially the top five, six guys in the NFL, uh, are just accurate passers. It's why I'm so bullish on Jimmy Garoppolo that's only started seven. He's just a naturally accurate passer. Now, some guys can't, like Derek Carr. Again, I'm a huge Derek Carr guy. I wouldn't call him just an innately you know, high-end accuracy passer. But when he's playing well, he's more than accurate enough. Uh, and, and he's more of a rhythm guy. Same with the Jameis Winstons of the world. Uh, Russell Wilson has gotten a lot better, but you have to be accurate. Then to me, it's the, the big intangible stuff. Your character, what you're like, that factors into how you act in the locker room, how people like, you know, you know, revolve. The entire franchise revolves around you. You know, everyone in that locker room on the practice field in the media is looking at you. So your character just gets exposed. I mean, it's just the one position, I'd say that an NBA superstar, which you can't hide from. Who you truly are comes out. And for the most part, most guys have been in the same kind of character bubble. Typically, really, really high-level guys. And I would also throw work ethic in that. You know, how much you're willing to grind when no one's looking, it's it's a lifestyle. Because playing NFL quarterback, and really college quarterback, for uh, for this sake of argument, is just, is your life. You know, you probably, you're going to have a family one day or whatever, but once the season starts, four, six months, you've read these stories on Peyton Manning or Tom Brady. They're texting their offensive coordinator 24-7. It consumes you. It's all you think about. At least it has to be for you to be good. If it's all-consuming, you got a chance to be great. And, and last, this is somewhat tangible and a little intangible. You have to be the most competitive guy on the field because everyone's looking at you to fail. Everyone's looking at you when you win. Everyone's depending on you every play. You literally touch the ball every play. Uh, you just have to be the most competitive guy on the team. And I, I think in the history of the top guys – from Joe Montana to Tom Brady to Brett Favre to Peyton Manning to Marino to Elway to the guys now like Drew Brees, still absolutely grinding at 38 years old. Just the guys in the league like Roethlisberger and Rivers, just how competitive they are. That doesn't mean you're always going to win because you're not. It doesn't mean you're always going to make the playoffs every year. I mean, look at Phillip Rivers. He struggles to make the playoffs every year. But I never watch him and go, you know, he's just not competitive enough. There's something – there's a competitive juice in Alex Smith that – 
I don't think he gets quite enough credit for. He was basically buried for dead in San Francisco before Jim Harbaugh got here. He was basically called out for faking an injury that wasn't true back in the day by, you know, the Mike Nolan, Mike Singletary regime. And there's a competitive nature in all these guys that just is a willingness to overcome anything. So to me, accuracy, your character slash work ethic, and your, your competitive nature drive are the things that I would look for. And it shows you why it's so hard and we have so many busts. Because two of those three things, uh, and we'll see it in this draft, like accuracy, we all can Google a guy's box score or stats or just watch the tape and know if he's accurate or not. The other things are hard to quantify, man. Uh, it's just it's really hard, and I, I think it's why we'll consistently see so many co- quarterbacks that get drafted high be weeded out of the league so fast. Let's go to Bengals game plan. This is a pretty good question. We don't talk much about the Bengals on here, but just the the basic part of this question is why can't the Bengals put it together? And I really think that they blew their they blew their shot because I would say there was a four year stretch like 2012, 2013, 14, 15. Uh, they had one of, if not the best rosters in the NFL. I think the year that Andy Dalton broke his thumb and A.J. McCarron ended up, remember, had to start a playoff game was kind of their year to make a legitimate run. They were so stacked on both sides of the ball. Uh, now a lot of those players are gone. There's been a huge turnover on their roster. I think Marvin Lewis gets somewhat of a bad rap. He's clearly a really good coach. I know he couldn't win a playoff game. But I, I think they're kind of going to have to start over. They did an incredible job starting with that Carson Palmer trade, getting multiple first-round picks, and they never flinched, uh, just nailing draft pick after draft pick. And at the end of the day, their quarterback is just somewhat of a limited guy. But I do think you probably couldn't have won the Super Bowl with him, but the year he broke his thumb, Hugh Jackson's last year in Cincinnati, that, that was their year at least to be like to the championship game. And I, I think you see them, they still do a good job. They clearly value size, uh, value athleticism. They're going to be a tough out always. They've actually, under Marvin Lewis, been a pretty well-run operation for despite having a super cheap owner. Uh, but but I think they're just, their window kind of closed. And they had a great opening when their team was so damn good. I vividly remember week one, I think it was Jack Del Rio's first year, as the Oakland Raiders head coach, going to the Coliseum and watching that game. It was pretty well hyped. The Bengals beat the living shit out of them. Their team was so big coming out of the locker room. And I remember working for the Philadelphia Eagles. They were one of the biggest teams in the league. They just, you know, it's going to have to, I would imagine this probably Marvin Lewis's last year and potentially Andy Dalton's last year. They're just going to need to kind of restart, you know, start start over. But they, they, they had a pretty good run. I mean, they, they good regular seasons. They just couldn't win in the playoffs. Last question from uh, T-Store. What do the Eagles do at 32? In a perfect world, do they trade back? They don't have, you know, a second or third round pick to acquire some more picks. I think at the end of the day, depending on if they just love a guy and he's there at 32 – and they're going to be in the mix for running backs. They, they need a legit starting running back. That Why wouldn't the Eagles, that do not have picks in the, the very next day, trade back if it's just three or four spots to a team like the Colts with multiple second-round picks? Maybe the Browns want to come back up and get another first-round pick to acquire maybe another third-round pick. So you go back to the second round, you get a cheaper asset on a team where Money is a really big deal because they have a very expensive uh, team. Draft a running back. Maybe you want Darius Geis. Maybe he'll be gone, but you can end up with Sony Michelle or Nick Chubb. 
and you get a legitimate starter at actually a cheaper price while you acquire a pick and able to get another guy in the third round. I think that's what they do. I, I heard, I think, Adam Schefter say it on the Peter King podcast that them and the Seattle Seahawks are two teams to keep an eye on for moving back. Seattle obviously has a long history of moving back. They usually don't give out first-round grades very liberally. Uh, they, you know, it feels like they have 10 first-rounders graded every year. So I, I would not be shocked to see Seattle move back and, and definitely the Eagles, even if it was just for three or four spots. It sucks not having a first-round pick. But if you're picking really high in the second round and you can acquire an extra third-round pick when you don't have a third-round pick, I, I think that's the move. I appreciate everyone listening. We'll be out next Wednesday with basically a, a full recap of, of this week's draft, uh, things I like, things I don't like. Uh, I'm sure I'll be hot on a, on a couple big moves. Hopefully some crazy stuff happens. I appreciate everyone listening. Go to iTunes, subscribe, rate, leave your questions like I just did. We'll answer them every podcast, and I'll see you next week on the Colin Coward Podcast Network. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash credit card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash credit card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.